Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No the following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 27th, the Live and Let Lice edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 1. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I am the dad of Lyra, who is 8, and Harper, who is 6. Hey, Dan. Hey. Wally took his first step yesterday, but I'm, oh. I missed it. I missed it. I missed oh. it. According well, to congratulations <laughs> on almost being a good enough mother to see your yeah. son's first yeah. step. Okay, on today's show, we'll talk to education reporter Dana Goldstein about new research that shows that a parent's involvement in school does not actually help that parent's kid do better. And then we'll discuss lice. Lice. I can't just say lice. lice. <laughs> Specifically, the new lice policy that some schools are adopting, which is basically kids with lice can stay in school. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a great listener call. But before we get to all that, a quick reminder, sorry to nag you, a quick reminder to subscribe either to the Slate Daily Podcast feed or to the Mom and Dad Are Fighting feed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you're listening, you've probably already done this, but tell your friends and family. On to triumphs and fails. Dan, you go first. Uh, My triumph this week, it's a triumph. It's a very self-serving triumph, though. So this weekend, I, I woke up on Sunday and Ollie was already up, and the kids were out of bed, and Lyra, our older daughter, was really, like, in a mood. You know how just sometimes kids wake up and they are in a mood, and she was whining and complaining yeah. about everything from, like, the second she got out of bed. And she kept interrupting Alia and, like, being mean to her sister, and she made Harper cry, and she went on this whole, like, riff about how it was so unfair that her snack at school was always the same because it's always fruit and some healthy thing, and it's not fair. And she was just, like, being an asshole, basically. Um, And the whole time – so I'm listening from our bedroom, and the whole time Alia – I hear Alia being very patient and not losing her temper at all, which she is very good at. And I am in our room just, like, 
boiling. Yeah. Just like itching to get out of there and make Lyra stop being such a jerk to her sister and to my wife and to all of us. And I just wanted to like yell at her and be like, stop, stop it, stop. But my triumph is that I did not. I waited it out. If I had gone out there and yelled, it would have definitely made everything worse. It would have also just amplified the sense that, that I have all the time that I am the one who yells. Um, and I'm trying not to always be the one who yells. And I didn't jump o- all over like Alia's parenting. She was actually parenting. Um, she had a plan. And she let Lyra exhaust herself. And then Lyra talked to her and Lyra apologized for being mean to everyone. And then when I came out later, everyone was totally fine and happy. So my triumph, such as it is, is that I laid in bed with the door closed instead of dealing with my children. Were you but supposed sometimes to- that's the right choice. Right. I'm just sad that you didn't actually get to sleep in. I did not. I was not able to go back to sleep. Yeah. That's but still, in our house too. still, I, I think that you were I, I think I won overall. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, mine is actually also about discipline, but mine is a fail. Uh, So when Harry was three or two or three, when he was throwing lots of fits, I went one day, I just was like, I have to figure this out. And I went to the bookstore and I bought like a million, that's an exaggeration, I bought five, I think, discipline books. And then the next day he was better, so I never read them. (laughs) And (laughs) And then, you know, then he went through phases over and over again, but still I kind of never, I never read them and I and I started to think I don't you know I don't need a discipline philosophy like everyone thinks that they have their discipline philosophy that works but the reason it works is that their kids eventually like the last thing that they've done when their kids eventually are old enough and grow out of throwing tantrums is the thing that they think worked and I'm just going to wait till my kid is old enough and grows out of throwing tantrums Uh, but my sister-in-law at the time swore by one two three magic have you heard of this no you haven't oh it's very popular around here um it's basically, I don't know, it's a book. I've never read the book, but it is a book that says <laughs> that you count. Tell me more. When your kids are acting out, you count. I know our listeners know what this is. You say, that's one, and then that's two. And if you get to three, I guess they, you know, there's a punishment. They get a timeout. Uh, but according to my sister-in-law and so many other people I know who have told me they love this book, their kids never get to three. They're way too scared to get to three. And I always thought this. Wait, under- someone published a whole book yes. about counting to three. Well, That's I guess just a there's thing more to it. Well, does. I don't know because I didn't read it. That's all I know. This is where I'm okay. getting to my fail. I got to hurry all up because right. I'm taking a long time. I figured this would never work on Harry. He was not scared of me at all. I thought he would just be like, "That's what you've got for me, counting." Like, okay. Uh, but now Sam is totally acting out, and I found myself doing going rogue doing one two three magic without having read one two three magic so i have no idea what one two three magic is but i'm counting all the time i'm just counting my house yelling numbers out all the time it's not working (laughs) shockingly it's not working uh i mean he does say like no counting but he doesn't he continues to act out so that's my fail that i'm sort of like doing a cover of one two three magic also, listeners, if you want to email me and tell me what I'm doing wrong, if it's worked for you, let me know. <laughs> what you're doing wrong is is not reading the book, I guess. <laughs> okay. Or maybe, are you counting wrong? Did you maybe start at two? Oh, and then you go one. to one oh. and then four? <laughs> it can be really confusing. Okay. Let's move on to our first segment. Do you actually need to be involved in your kid's education? Does all that time you're spending on their homework actually do anything to help? 
A new study from sociologists at the University of Texas and Duke suggests maybe not. The study collected 30 years worth of longitudinal surveys of American parents and tracked 63 measures of parental participation and academics, indexing them to children's academic performance. And the results suggest that very few methods of sticking your nose into your kid's classroom experience actually help. Dana Goldstein wrote about the survey and the new issue of The Atlantic and talked to the researchers, and she is on the phone with us to talk about her piece. Hi, Dana. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Dana, so the headline on your piece, at least the online headline, um, is simple and genius. It's just don't help your kids with their homework. Yeah, talk about clickbait. Right, right. right. But so it worked. Uh, But it also is a nifty summary of why this matters so much, I think, to many parents, because that's the, the number one way that most parents on a day-to-day basis sort of weigh this question of how much do I stick my nose into my kids' schooling? Is how much do I help with their homework? Do I really dive in? Do I make them do it themselves? Do I bug them constantly to do it? Um, And the study that you talk about suggests that it maybe doesn't make that much of a difference. Why do the researchers think and why do you think that helping kids with homework doesn't necessarily help their performance? So what these surveys of parents asked is a number of questions about how they get involved with homework. So some of those questions were, do you require the child to do the homework at a specific time and place? Do you punish the child if the homework is not done by a specific time, say no dessert or go to your room if it's not done by 7 o'clock? Do you review the child's answer? So do you correct wrong answers? Um, And just basically how closely do you supervise this entire process? Now, what it found is that in elementary school, it sort of doesn't matter one way or the other if you do these activities. However, by the time the child gets to middle school and certainly in high school, there is a negative correlation with student achievement. So the more involved the mom and dad is in the homework process, the worse the kids do. So now, why is that? The researchers posit a few explanations. The first is that perhaps by middle school and high school, most parents are no longer able to really help with homework. Perhaps they've forgotten the middle school and the high school math. And I, I don't know, that resonated as potentially true for me. I found that with math even in elementary school. The way that they're learning it is different from, from yeah, how I know so it. Yeah, so much has changed yeah. from when we were in school. Um, and then the second thing there, which I think is probably the bigger picture, more meaningful explanation why, is that when the children know that the parents are always there to scoop in and save them from mistakes and wrong answers, they are less... Um, they're less, res- less responsible. They take less responsibility onto themselves. They have the sense that when they're in a pickle that the parent will come in and rescue them. And what the researchers say this suggests is that children should be able to fail and learn to fail and rebound from failure at those younger ages because the consequences for failing on a homework assignment are really, really low in elementary and middle school. And they get more important as you go into high school and college. And you would rather have the kid learn the failure process as a younger child than as a teenager or in college or in adulthood when the consequences are going to be much stiffer. How does this research sync up with what I think is the conventional wisdom about class and student achievement, that parents who uh, have more money and and because of that, more, I think, more time and resources to help their children with school, their kids do better? That's a great question. It really turns conventional wisdom on its head. So we have been proceeding from a national assumption that if poor kids' parents are more involved at school, it will close the achievement gap. What this study found is that regardless of class or parents' education level or race, the parental outcomes and the children' outcomes for all these interventions are pretty similar. 
So rich parents may be more likely to kind of micromanage homework, but they don't get better results than poor parents when they do so. So that's really interesting. Another thing that the researchers ask parents is, what are your attitudes about? <clears throat> what are your attitudes about school? And there, again, there was remarkable consistency across race and class and education level. All the parents really wanted their kids to do well in school. They reported that they told their kids it was really important for them to do well and to go to college. But some parents were more effective <laughs> at raising kids who do well than others, and, and that is correlated with race and class. So then the question is why, if it's not the involvement in the micromanaging the homework and all this other stuff that leads to successful kids, what is the mechanism there? And the answer is that if you are a highly educated, middle class, or affluent parent, you're embedding your child in a social situation, a neighborhood, a friend group that is going to give them the message that education is important and they will begin to internalize those beliefs much more effectively than poor children who are not exposed to those communities. So when you know adults who have interesting careers and who reminisce fondly about their college years, that begins to affect you as a child. And that's the sort of rich kid advantage. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that 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 the that the best gift you can give your kids in many ways is simply surrounding them with adults who are like living proof of the notion that studying hard leads to an interesting life. Yeah, the overall environment is more important than the sort of day-to-day, minute-to-minute parental anxiety. And I think that for fairly privileged parents, that is a relief. Unfortunately, it might be a little bit depressing for parents who are struggling. Um, and I think you know, what this study shows is that parental involvement can actually widen the achievement gap as opposed to shrink it, which unfortunately, eek, that's not what we want to hear because we've been spending hundreds of millions of federal dollars on encouraging parents to be more involved day to day at their kids' schools. The other thing is if if you're an affluent parent, it's not just the environment in in your neighborhood that's helping your kids, but your kids are probably going to a school with better teachers and more resources. Right, Allison. That is an excellent point because one thing the study didn't test is school choice. So we know that some parents are sort of content to just send their kid to the neighborhood school. They don't give it a lot of extra thought. But other parents, even some poor parents, go to great lengths to get their kids into a much better school. And that is a potentially powerful intervention that this study did not address. You do mention in the piece that the study found that there are a few very specific behaviors that do produce results. And the one that I really wanted to focus on, because it's the one that's most important to me, is reading to young children. Yes. So there were three, three parental interventions that did work really well. Reading aloud daily to your child from birth through first grade is so important. That really did affect the student's um, ability to do well in school And it's a really important message to hone in on because currently only about half of American children are being read to daily. Um, And then to go through the other two that did work well, the second one was with teenagers, and it's detailed discussion of your teenager's plans for life after high school. So the message here is to think long-term when you talk with your kids about academics and the importance of doing well in school. Obsess less about the minute-to-minute daily homework and more about life after high school, whether it's going to be college or community college or career, the parents who took the time to have a detailed conversation about those things with their teenagers, those kids had better results. And then the third thing, and I think this is potentially one of the most controversial, is teachers. The parents who figured out who were the teachers at their kids' school with the best reputation and then finagled the system to get their kids into those teachers' class, those kids experienced eight points of achievement gains in reading and math. 
That part stresses me out. That's the part I didn't want to hear. Right? Because that's like the pushy parent. Right. You know, it kind of is like that pushy parent who we're telling parents maybe they don't want to be. And it's, it's sort of disturbing because we also know that white parents are over twice as likely to request a specific teacher as non-white parents. That is disturbing. And although in my school they have just made a blanket announcement that no teacher request will be accepted. So I love that policy. I think that's really important <laughs> because this is something that um, this is something that is making inequality worse in our school system. All, All right. right. Well, thank you very much, Dana, for calling in. It's a really fascinating piece. Everyone should read it. Once again, don't help your kids with their homework at The Atlantic. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, thank Dana. So, Dan, are you going to back off on your kids' homework? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting because Lyra is at exactly the age where she's re- homework is starting to be a big deal. She has it every day now this year for the first time. And she, like many of her friends, I hear this from a lot of parents in our neighborhood, she is at exactly the age where she's completely obsessed with fears about what happens if she doesn't do her homework or get something wrong on it. And a lot of that is spurred, I think, by this belief she has that we're there to help her make sure that everything is right. And she's very concerned with every individual question, with checking to see if it is right. But this is exactly the age where I want her to learn, as Dana was mentioning, that it's not a huge deal to get something wrong on your homework. That getting something wrong on your homework and getting it marked wrong is not the end of the world. It's just the next step in learning to get it right. And so I want her to get things wrong from time to time and for me to not be there to, like, hold her hand through that process. It's such a hard thing to communicate because on the one hand, you want your kids to, you know, think that homework is important enough because you want them to do it (laughs) uh, because their teachers want them to do it. And even, you know, even if that's the only reason, like their teachers are, you know, in a position of authority and they should be doing what their teachers say. Well, on the other hand, I think what you say and what Dana said makes a lot of sense and is true that it is very low stakes and that, you know, I know in kindergarten it might be different once we're in first grade, but our teacher says, like, don't stress about homework. And if your kid, if it's too much for your kid to get it done during the week, take the weekend, you can turn it in when, you you know, like, it's not, it's, it, it seems like it's more about training, <laughs> right. training to do your homework than about the actual work. Right. Um, and our school, kindergarten homework in our school is strictly optional. They give it out and then they say, do it or don't do it. We don't care. Ours is not. But anyway, it seems it seems like you have the right idea. And, and I, I'll be interested, you know, from in my own situation to figure out how to kind of communicate that 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 balance. All right. Let's move on to our listener call. Each week we take a call and question from a listener and we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Ask us anything, and we'll do our best to answer. So here is today's question. It comes from Christy, mom of seven-year-old son, Ben. Hi, my name is Christy, and I have a son, Ben, who's seven. And sometimes we are in the dilemma of when we are on playdates or Cub Scout events with other families, and I'm supervising the kids, um, of disciplining the other kids. So, you know, my kid, I, of course, can give him the evil eye, and, you know, he generally behaves or I have a consequence. But when other kids are misbehaving or not doing what they should be doing or rude or running when they shouldn't be running or climbing on rocks and, um, you know, those kinds of things where you want to say, hey, you know, don't do that. That's not nice. That's not good. And... I don't have any consequence 
or power of consequence with these kids, really. I mean, I guess I could say, you know, hey, um, uh, you know, I'm going to tell your mom, but uh, or we could go home, but that doesn't seem really like as, uh, always as effective. And I'm not sure how other parents feel about me. I, I hate to say disciplining, but guiding their kid um, in something like that or fighting um, that I find myself in sometimes and wondered how other parents thought about that. Thanks. Love the podcast. That is a great question, Christy, um, and one that has definitely come up a lot, you know, during playdates. Um, I, I would say that I am pretty un, a pretty unapologetic other kid guider and discipliner. Like, I don't, um, I mean, I obviously don't, like, spank other kids or something, and I don't even really even lay a hand on other kids. Um, but I do, like, verbally discipline and very verbally remind kids of proper behavior on the grounds that if my kid is at someone else's house and she is behaving badly, I want them to do that for her. Like, I don't want her to think that just because she's at someone else's house, she's allowed to behave worse. In fact, I want her to behave better. And I assume other kids want the same thing from their kids when they're at my house. Yeah, I mean, I feel comfortable telling other kids, you know, not to do things, and there are varying, varying degrees to which they will listen or respect what I say. I think kids are not, as as I said earlier I, I, about my parenting fail, I don't think kids are scared of their parents or uh, of other adults as they used to be, uh, so it doesn't maybe work as well as it used to. But I also think this is not what you're asking, Christy, so I'm I'm going to riff here and butt my nose in a little bit. But our colleague, Hannah, um, what's her name? Hannah Rosen. <laughs> Our colleague, Hannah Rosen, has a new piece in The Atlantic on um, on these things called adventure playgrounds, which are these playgrounds where there are basically no parents around and they're kind of dangerous. Kids can climb on things and start fires. And the, the premise of the piece is that we no longer let our kids take risks. And I don't, you know, I have no idea what the situations are where you feel like you need to step in, Christy. But I also wonder if, if in some situations, none of us should be, that if the kids are walking on the wall and it seems a little dangerous or throwing rocks or like maybe we should just let them figure it out. I know you, you want to protect your child from getting hurt and other children from either hurt, getting hurt themselves or hurting your child. Maybe those are things that they actually need to like just do. So I, I'm not always great at that. But since reading Hannah's piece, which I really highly recommend, I have thought about it more. Uh, so I guess I would... I would say don't always step in. I mean, I think that's good advice. But there are definitely times when, for whatever reason, you feel like something needs to be brought to a stop or someone needs to be reminded that that is not the proper way to behave. I mean, it's going to happen even if yeah. you decide to sort of follow Hannah's lead. And I, it's interesting that you say that you feel like kids don't fear adults anymore. I think that is certainly true in many ways for my kids and me. But what I have found in my experience is that is that – I actually have, it seems to me, more a more intimidating influence on other people's kids than I do on my own, which is to say I'm a little bit of a stranger. Uh, it's a little – I'm a little bit unfamiliar to other kids, even ones who's who have been friends with my kids for quite some time. And so I do find that if I step in and firmly, you know, with a real grown-up voice say that is not allowed in our house or I'm going to tell your mother if you do not – 
stop behaving like that or something like that. I find that kids, other kids generally snap to attention a little bit more than my own kids do at this point who have, you know, have become immune to the sound of my shouting because they hear it every day. Yeah. One thing I, I, do, I don't think you should worry about, Christy, is what other parents think. Yeah. You know, it's kids are in your house or kids are with your kids in a public place and you are an adult who has the ability to make decisions on behalf of other kids, even if they are not your kids. Um, you know, if the other parent is standing right there, then it's it becomes more complicated and it's not your job anymore. But don't worry about what other parents are going to think before you make a situation safe or deal with a situation that you think you need to deal with. Okay. Thanks so much for the question, Christy. And again, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Moving on to our next topic, lice. For years, if a school discovered that a child had head lice, the school nurse would call that child's parents, and the parents would come pick up the child and embark on a days-long process of shampooing and combing and shampooing and combing some more in order to get rid of the lice and get the kid back to school. Now, some schools, including in Arlington, Virginia, where Dan lives, are adopting a new policy, which is essentially, lice are no big deal. We're not going to check for lice at school. If for some reason we find out that your kid has lice, we're not going to send her home. Dan, you are super excited about this totally revolting policy. (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Tell me why. Yes, I am. (laughs) Uh, I can hear you scratching your head furiously right now, (laughs) just as you think of these bugs crawling all over you. But so... Yes, this policy came out last fall, and um, it was it was uh, received with great cheering in our household and in the household of many of our friends, um, because lice are a huge pain in the neck. They, uh, in every way other than being an actual pain in the neck, they cause most kids very little discomfort of any kind. Um, and but for years and years and years and years, your kids would have you'd have to like leave work. Go pick up your kid. They would miss at least a half day of school, maybe more, as you procured all the chemicals that you then had to put in their hair. And then inevitably they would get lice again in like a week, and then you would be right back at it. Um, And so kids were missing school. My kids missed days of school because of this. I have girls. They have thick hair. They get lice all the time. Um, And... And it seemed to me a really frustrating thing to have to do for something that, as far as I could tell, had, like, basically no ill effects. Like, these were, like, perfectly healthy kids who could go run around and do anything. And the problem was that they had some bugs in their hair. But if they, like, had gotten a bunch of mosquito bites, no one would be like, you have to stay home from school because of your mosquito bites. And so it drove me crazy. And this new policy, I think, is really great. And one of the things that I think is great about it is that it is based on the science. Um, for this piece I wrote for Slate, um, which ran yesterday, um, Wednesday, the, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the National Association of School Nurses and the CDC all recommend this as a policy, that if a child has lice, um, the child is not sent home, that you send a note home to the parents or you call the parents and let them know, um, that schools should not be in the business of, like, lining kids up and checking for lice eggs or lice every day, um, that that is a waste of time and doesn't actually prevent anything, really, because lay people are not that good at finding nits or lice, um, and that no-nit policies, which were the norm at schools for years and years and years and years, meaning that even if you kill all the live lice, unless you go through and comb for every single last nit or louse egg in a child's hair, they can't go return to school. 
no-knit policies are baloney and make no sense and and are not a scientifically valid way of preventing the spread of lice. So the reason that so many schools for so long had, you know, the opposite policy, send your kids home and check them, and was because I think there's this idea, an idea that I thought was true until I edited your piece, even though I, like, still didn't believe you and, like, asked you, like, (laughs) 45,000 times, are you sure this is true, Uh, is that they're highly contagious and that, like, schools are a breeding ground for lice. The kids stay, and then now if the kid stays at school, everyone's going to get you know, everyone's going to get even more lice and that lice travels through the classroom. And that's why, you know, one kid has lice and then everybody has lice. You say, or the people that you talk to say, that is not true, that it's not highly contagious. It's not particularly contagious. No. I mean, so there are two parts to this question. The first part is, let's say it's like 11 o'clock in the morning and your kid gets called in to the nurse because the teacher has seen them scratching their head like crazy. Um, And they get in there and so yes they're suffering an adverse effect and the nurse looks in their hair in her hair and she sees she he or she sees some live lice so at the, by the time any kid has actually started feeling the lice and has maybe started scratching her head um, those lice have been in there for an average of three weeks that means that's been three weeks that that kid has been at school next to other kids, maybe giving them lice or maybe not, depending on how close their heads get. But at any rate, from 11 till 3, that kid is probably not really going to give any other kids any lice that they don't already have. The chances are really slim that in that four-hour window, a kid is going to transmit lice to anyone else. And so sending them home for the day is essentially pointless. But then greater than that, yes, is this greater question of how contagious are lice really? And the answer is not that contagious. For you to give lice to someone else, you almost certainly need to actually entangle your hair in theirs. So that means that you are playing and you lay down next to each other and have head-to-head contact. Or you rub your hair together or braid your hair together or you sleep on the same pillow at a sleepover or at sleepaway camp or something like that. Lice are not that good at crawling. They can't jump. They can't fly. They just stick on your hair unless another hair shows up right next to it. And maybe they will move from one hair to the other. Remember that story from a few weeks ago or a month ago that was that was about cel- kids are getting more lice because of selfies, like putting their heads together and taking selfies. Was so that that's a way that lice can transmit. I have no idea if that yeah. almost certainly apocryphal story is true, but it's <laughs> right. theoretically possible. And right. that when you put your head in next to someone else's head and your hair entangles, that is the only situation in which lice are likely to transmit. Even like sharing a hat, maybe, you know, everyone I talked to said, sure, it can happen, but you know, it doesn't happen that often. Like maybe if you share a hat 20 times, one time you get lice and that, and that's too bad. Now you have lice. And so certainly it's going to happen at school more often than it's going to happen. Like, I don't know, at the dentist's office, but it's, it happens way less often at school than it happens at sleepovers or playdates or sleepaway camp or some situation in which kids are putting their heads together a lot as opposed to at school where, honestly, that doesn't happen all that often because usually you are sitting at your desk doing work. Right? The other point you make in your piece is even if it were very highly contagious, it doesn't matter. Like lice right. is not – lice isn't harmful. Lice aren't lice. lice. don't matter. They right. just don't matter. Like it is – If lice make your head itch and you want to rid yourself of them, great. 
do it. Um, do the shampoos and everything. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily, and I couldn't get any of these experts on lice to say, well, just ignore lice and just don't even worry about them. They're just bugs. Um, obviously, there's a creepy factor to having bugs in your kid's hair, and many people, it drives them crazy. For many kids, it does make them itch and makes them uncomfortable, so do something about it, fine. But they do not transmit disease. They do not... They are not a sign of poor hygiene or bad parenting. They are not a reason to, like, shun another kid. They don't – they're just, like – they're just bugs. There's, there are some bugs in your hair. It's, like, it's not a big deal. And so the most refreshing thing about this policy to me is that it takes lice from something that drove parents crazy and that schools dealt with like it was a red alert with sirens flashing and send the kid home and downgrades it to – the minor nuisance that they actually are, which is the way I wish everyone would treat them, and which is why I think that this level-headed policy is a total triumph in an era in which I'm not used to schools adopting level-headed policies that are total triumphs. Yeah. Okay. I, we're curious what you think. I don't know what my school does. I'm gonna. I'm gonna find out. You should. You got listeners. Find out what your school. So do. says Tell a us. mom of boys. <laughs> Yeah, my kids have not had lice yet, although this is our first year in, you know, we've just entered kindergarten. I don't know. Right. I don't hear about a lot about lice outbreaks at preschool. But, I mean, I remember having it as, as a kid. My sister's kids have them constantly. And my sister and her husband get get them too, which is why I thought, like, I don't know about the, the Ming super contagious. But, anyway, tell us what you think about this. I know I called it revolting, but I actually think Dan's right that it makes a lot of sense. Um, I would, however, definitely treat the kids at home. I don't know if you're, Dan, if you're thinking of giving up treatment altogether. I don't know. It's. I mean, our kids will definitely get it again. Yeah. I have two girls with long hair. They will get it again. Um, and it's probably in the end going to be up to Alia because because when your kids get it, Allison, you will get it too because parents entangle their hair with their kids all yeah. the time. Yeah. When our kids get it, Alia gets it. And it drives her like crazy, the idea of these things being in her hair. And so she becomes like a maniac getting them out. I am bald. So I'm like, go to it, everyone. I'll be oh, over here watching God, TV. That's the part of the story we didn't... <laughs> My picture is right there that. on the story. My picture is right there. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to our recommendations. Uh, Dan, go ahead. What's okay. Next? Allison, can you please um, give me an adjective? Oh, my gosh. Why? Fast. Fast? Okay. Um, and I also need a plural noun. Um, houses. Houses. Okay. My recommendation is Mad Libs. Uh, the fast word game that you remember from when you were a kid, Allison, which has been making Lyra crack up while she plays it with all her houses for days now. They still sell Mad Libs. They still sell them in stores. Um, I had completely forgotten about them, but we were at the toy store the other day and they had a spinner rack of Mad Libs and Lyra was like, what is this? And I said, ah, I get it. And she loves them. Um, her friends think they are the funniest thing they have ever heard of. It's like the new thing among Lyra's friends now, this like 50-year-old word game. Um, anyways, they're still funny. They're great. I love them. That's Buy awesome. Kids and really lips. good for road trips. Yes. Also, Lyra cannot figure out how to pronounce adjective. And <laughs> and no matter how many times I tell her, she pronounces it uh, adjective. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not it. She's like, so well, Daddy, give me an adjective. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I have so many things to recommend. I wanted to recommend Hannah's Atlantic piece, but I already mentioned it. Also, John Dickerson published yesterday a lovely uh, – he's our Slate's political correspondent um, and, and political gabfest co-host or panelist uh, who almost always writes about politics, but he also writes these really lovely family essays, and he just published one yesterday about the experience of having his children kind of 
know things that he doesn't know and teach him how to do things. Uh, and I, you guys should should read it. But I'm going to not going to officially recommend either of those. I'm going to recommend the NBC one hour drama Parenthood. Oh. Which I know, <laughs> and I think I recommended it when I used to be on the Double X Gab Fest, but I figure this is a whole new batch of listeners, so I'll recommend it again. Do you watch the show, Dan? I do not because I hate crying and snotting all over myself. Okay, so yes, it's corny. I actually took a break from watching it for a while. It hit like peak corniness in, la- in last season, but I started again this season, and I just, I don't know, I love it. I don't know if I just love having a cry every week, because I do. I mean, I really do have a good, like, heaving cry every week watching it but I also love them and I think you know for all the corniness there also are like a lot of very honest relatable parenting moments and this is a parenting podcast so parenthood it's on oh I don't even know when it's on because I DVR it I think it's, it's on, on your DVR it's on Allison's DVR <laughs> so I think it's on Thursdays it's on Thursdays on NBC and it's really it's it's good it's good uh, okay that's our show Please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast app. And please call us with your questions, 424-255-7833. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of all Slate Podcasts. Thanks, Dana Goldstein, for coming on to talk to us. And thank you, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Thank you all for listening. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.